My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. On today's episode, I talked to Jesse T. William about homebrewing creatures and classes. These are designed for 5th edition, but a lot of the design that we talk about is narrative-focused, so it should work in just about any system. If you'd like to help us make more content, consider joining the Patreon. You can also bookmark our affiliate links to Amazon and DriveThruRPG to support the show with each purchase. Want a free way to help the show? Give it a review on your favorite podcast platform, or like and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Finally, if you'd like to be on the show, or think you know a great guest, contact me on the Discord server or on Twitter. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Welcome, everybody. Today, I have Jesse T. William with me again. Welcome, Jesse. Thank you for having me. Jesse was on episode 60, so if you'd like to hear more about him, you can go check out that episode. But today, we're going to talk a little bit about homebrew and the process of designing for homebrew. So with that, Jesse, I'll let you kind of take it away. Hell yeah. Well, yeah, I I think so. All of the the things I do in D&D since the start have been homebrew. I've always been very reluctant to use other people's like content or even like look at the, not look at the monster manual, but like take a lot from the monster manual outside of dragons. I have a, a sort of obsession with originality that has kind of led me down this path of forcing myself to homebrew. I've designed a era designed a couple of classes and I'm working on some others. And I've also designed a, a number of our uh, of homebrew creatures is there like a specific point of interest you want to start with those let's start with monsters and then maybe get into classes second oh yeah yeah so when i started i think i really hit a, a big stride when i when i started doing the professional gm thing because for these these games i it was kind of a almost like a point of of escalation of of like through my games i i wanted things to be more meaningful and more interesting and so typically the way i run my games or, or like structure a campaign is that there is some kind of big existential threat that like bleeds out into a bu- bunch of different aspects typically you know it's it's some kind of abyssal or infernal plane and so what i figured out was or was struggling with was how to tell a story through the the monsters and creatures that are expressed from that that aren't just like well here's a fight like what do we what do we sort of learn about these things so in the the biggest kind of series of campaigns i run which i have eight games running a week in a kind of central the central like conflict or 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 i guess the, the big bad is this like plane of lies so in in my world there are three parts of the feywild there's the infernal side of the feywild which is the plane of lies there's the feywild and the like celestial side of the feywild so a lot of the campaign centers around what if fairies were worse or at least as far as some of the monsters go there there are a lot more layers to it but in the storytelling they're central to the the design is is the question of well what does it mean to be from a plane of lies so we talked a bit about the the eyeless imposter last time and did i did i did i talk a lot about the wailing monarch as well i don't remember that one it was the eyeless imposter and then the deceitful traveler right 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 yeah yeah so so with the the design it's like well what how how do i take this idea of lying and and kind of extend it out into a longer story cuz with the the monsters what i really want to do is tell a story i i i'm not 
interested in, in having a super hard fight, but I'd rather have some things that would be memorable for the players. So using this idea of lying will take the eyeless imposter, if I can remember clearly enough. But yeah, it's it's it centers around its stories, as we talked about, this idea of it, it like impersonating someone it's it's what's the word uh impersonating imposter same thing so it like kills a a person and takes their identity in an isolated place and then prevents the 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 individuals who knew that initial person from realizing that it is an imposter so the story is always exploring and like uncovering what that lie is you know the players typically would either encounter like the discarded body of the individual who is replaced by the imposter or encountering the individuals who are kept alive by the imposter who have their eyes removed which i think rather than just go ahead and and you know like initiate a combat i think that raises an interesting question of like well why are their eyes removed right their rate baked in is is a mystery and so they begin to prod on that and you know they'll find that as the eyeless imposter is this like non-human creature who is like trying to take care of these people they'll realize the the problem in in the people's like diet and health and like they've been eating like leather or something like something weird that they don't understand as this sort of mystery builds and secondary to that there's also this sense of of shame from the eyeless imposter which i i found like really important to the idea of its design and, and how I want it to behave and if people would, were to use it, how I'd want them to use it. And I think that was sort of one aspect, this idea of like, maybe not what it means to be a, like a liar, but like how you explore the different like character flaws that come from having to lie a lot. And so again, as I, I think we talked about, I'm, I'm going off of a, a very busy memory, but the only way to kill the eyeless imposter is to like force it to force it to look upon its victims. So hopefully, and I, I've I've run it twice so far in, in game, and it's worked out pretty well so far. But the idea is that you kind of seed within the party this mystery or, or this hint of like shame and how it behaves, and then when they finally kill it or like reduce it to zero hit points and it doesn't go away immediately hopefully they can you know with some hints of course from the dm after the fact like come to a satisfying conclusion of of revealing it or, or you know figuring out the making it look upon its victims and revealing having that reveal be the you know culmination of the story but i think the the again the purpose of of that is to try to achieve rather than have the players in the moment like get reduced to zero hit points or or knocked unconscious or kill them have them think about about what it means that this creature is around because there i think there's like maybe eight or nine creatures that i designed so far from this plane of lies and yeah how i i would hope that like i've done my job correctly although you know it, it you know, when players have divine sense and things like that, they get to pick up a little more information <laughs> of like, oh, it's Infernal Fae, that's weird. But hopefully they, they like pick up the themes before they like the explicit knowledge of, of oh, it's a god of lies or the, you know, the uh, creatures that are made of deceit that are, are invading or, or, or crossing through at this point. So it really sounds like you kind of pick, you know, a theme for your creatures and then you kind of go down the rabbit hole of asking questions. Well, what, what, and why would this creature 
act a certain way or yeah or whatever yeah and it's really on 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 the the nature of of like lying as well because oftentimes you know the first thing you know a a party will ask or it depending on the party but you know there are these like cultists in this setting that that work for lies and the first thing that they ask is like well why are you doing this like what's the what's the motivation and it's a really like when when you have a thing that's just about lying it's like like why are they lying but when it comes to the creatures like designing so i'll talk about about the wailing monarch which is a a really nasty one but a really exciting one as well i think i think there's a sort of just your like malevolent and like chaotic evil kind of aspect to to lying like there really is you know oftentimes it is is to serve a a purpose and it's it's self-serving but i think there's also an aspect to some people who just lie just because like just because they can and exploring the more like i guess suppose psychopathic area of that and i think the wailing monarch is is one of my favorite creature designs for that because it's just pure evil I'll, I'll i think I'll, I'll the way i'll introduce it to you i'll go through the sort of story of, of how i typically introduce it to a, a group of, of players i think the best way is to you know have them enter a town a lot of people are dead or severely injured and so immediately there's there's a question of like well what happened who came through here and the answer the first kind of weird thing that they encounter is that well we did this to ourselves the wailing monarch it's it, I, it took a bit of inspiration from a a episode of a show called love death and robots i can't recall if i if i made it around the same time or after but once i made the connection there's essentially this monster in, in one of the episodes that like is this water spirit that like sings this song or like screams or something and like draws people into the water and makes them drown and makes them go crazy so essentially the wailing monarch is like it it looks like a, a person and it is very intelligent it's very deceitful it has like a plus 14 or something it has like expertise in, in deception and the idea is that someone will find it in the middle of like the woods or something and it will again it looks like a person it will be feigning injury and so it kind of preys on the the good instincts of people where it will kind of without even like talking it'll, it'll pretend to be like you know hazy or, or or confused and it will be taken hopefully to a a place where it can be helped in, in really big quotations there that is ideally a, a population center and then it will let out this scream and anyone who can hear the scream or is like within range like can hear it in their mind is forced to make a intelligence saving throw or begin to take actions to harm themselves but with the design of the creature i didn't want it to just be a like stop at that like once you kill it it's it's done i i wanted it to begin to be more layered and even in the storytelling of like well if that's the case why why are there survivors why do why how do you even find people after it's been through a town because like the dc i think is 19 so a couple of rounds of that and and most people are like commoners are, are going to be dead even if they do make a save so i think the first thing i, I thought was important to this creature was to have once someone saves from it's from its whale 
that they can never be affected again by this specific monarch. So you get a bit, start to develop this kind of like survivor story from it. But then also it, it gives the players an edge in combat once they do succeed. Secondary to this thing, very similar to the Eyeless Imposter, is that once it's reduced to zero hit points, it doesn't die. So the players begin to learn about the the Wailing Monarch. It's, it's very evil. It hurts people. They go out and find it, track it down, have their fight. It's really tough. It has, a, I think, legendary actions and resistances, and it's, it's pretty, pretty, like, limiting for, for a, a, a party. It really, it's going to stop a lot of people from acting pretty consistently. But then once it's dead... It doesn't stop screaming. So then the players are faced with the secondary thing of like, well, how do we get rid of this screaming thing? Because if anyone comes into contact with it, chances are that they're just going to die. Hopefully at this point, the party had all made their intelligence saves. And so I've, I've used this against one of my parties and they, it took them, I think, four to five encounters to, to finish, to actually finish it because what happens when the wailing monarch isn't killed is that something called the wailing knight essentially chased down the party with the head of the wailing monarch which is still screaming until the deed is done and the deed is is uh, like the only the, the way to to kill it is just to submerge the head in water so like i think you know given given a, the chaotic nature of most parties my thought there being that maybe 30% of the time someone would try to stick the head in water and find out it's successful or throw it down a well or something. But the other 70% 70 of the time, the Wailing Monarch comes, or the Wailing Knight rather comes and, and attempts to force the party to deal with the situation. But there is at least a hint in which whoever slayed the monarch or landed the killing blow receives a vision of the wailing knight which is like a 10 foot tall creature as well like full clad in armor and carries this huge axe kneeling in a spring that is nearby and then standing up and then the vision ends and the wailing knight is on the hunt and i think when they first kill the Wailing Knight. It's also a creature that doesn't dies until the Wailing Monarch dies. So again, the party will receive, or someone, whoever killed it, receives a vision of the Wailing Knight kneeling back down in the spring. And then after 24 hours, they receive another vision. So the party that, that dealt with this had to kill the Wailing Knight three or four times before they, they figured out the puzzle. And I think that was honestly partially because they had a lot of things to do in the game, but also partially their fault for, for not really thinking about it too much. But I, I found a lot of fun and in, in, in success in, in the design of that. And did they, what was the kind of tension at the table with them repeatedly having this like same or similar encounter and fight? Each successive time that they dealt with it was, was more inconvenient than the last. So when they first, when they first dealt with the Wailing Monarch, they were rescuing one of the party members' fathers from the Plain of Lies. And essentially like the Wailing Monarch was just left alone as kind of like a guard dog. So they dealt with it with the help of some, some high-level NPCs. It was a complicated encounter, so that was kind of brushed over. And then they were on their way to negotiate a, a or attempt to negotiate a peace. And they're in this little town and hear like heavy footsteps. And they see this like large figure looming outside the tavern. And they're with a, a number of important NPCs. And then it pulls out the head of, of the Wailing Monarch. 
and all of the NPCs who admittedly are like leveled and, and, you know, safe, you know, start hurting themselves. And because the party had already succeeded most of their saving throws, they get into action, they deal with it, but they still had this, had to go straight to this, this peace meeting. So the peace meeting happens. It doesn't go well. There's an attack in the streets of the city that they are now trying to flee. And the Wailing Knight shows up again. The street is, is sent into chaos and they have to deal with it. And the final time they dealt with it was during a battle. So, so this thing had been escalating. The peace talks didn't go well. Came to a very brutal battle. And in the middle of the battle, marching through the canopy or, or through the tree line towards the front lines, this 10-foot-tall armor-clad giant knight thing with this huge axe making a beeline towards the party with the head of this this wailing monarch. And it was only once they used... So so in this, in this specific circumstance, they were very lucky because the the... In the battle, their their forces were outnumbered, and part of the plan was to like set the field on fire and kind of like make everyone who was wearing heavy armor on the other side have a really hard time wearing that heavy armor in the heat, both in the like hot climate of where they were at and like the added heat of, of the, the fire. So when they cast an ice spell at the the wailing knight, I, I took the opportunity to be like, Well, you see the like as the the Ice turns to water and then to, to steam. It seems to like mark the head of the, the monarch. And then they, they cast Creator Destroy Water around the head and, and stopped it. But yeah, it was a point of like, they, they were already having a really hard time in that battle and had like another encounter to do directly after it. So by the, once they, once they solved the puzzle, they, they were really like, I think relieved but even even like i remember the night before and and giving it was the cleric who had killed it the, the last time so giving the cleric a vision of like well you see the the wailing knight standing up from its spring and the whole party just being like shit 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 it was it was really fun yeah that sounds like a, a pretty terrifying creature to come up against i just uh, if you don't figure it out how to kill it that it's just gonna keep being a problem until you sit down and deal with it essentially yeah yeah it was definitely a very inconvenient time for them i'll also say real quick just a fun note of design for the wailing knight because aside from the you know once once you've encountered the once you are, are set up to encounter the wailing knight the like aspects of the wailing monarch that were a problem aren't really a problem anymore because everyone's made their save they're immune to the 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 whale but i gave the knight a really fun ability which is to like because it's so tall it like kicks people over with its legendary actions and if it knocks someone prone it'll use its next legendary action to stomp on them for like a, a pretty large amount of damage so it became a really fun layer to combat of like when people are getting kicked over before the the wailing knight can act with its next legendary action having a player hopefully with enough strength like pull their party member out from underneath the boot that's coming down yeah no it was it was it was it was memorable i hope for for the party Kind of a fun setup mechanic there to put them in a tough spot that they need to get out of before, or they have a chance to get out of it before they take damage. Yeah, yeah.
And I think you mentioned on the last episode, but these pictures and stuff are available on your Patreon. Yeah, yeah. So last episode, I was just in the process of working on filling out basically a compendium of of all of the things I've designed for my games. So I think right now there are four, like four or five kinds of creatures from different planes in my world that all have like different stories attached to them. And, and the most fleshed out are, are the uh, these these infernal fae creatures. But then I also have just in this like large compendium that I'm trying to update hopefully once a month, once a month, all of the, or not all of the, them, but a couple of classes that are in various stages of development for me, as well as a number of magic items, which are, are ultra specific to my world and how i run things so i don't know how how great they'll be for other other people's games but at least we'll give some ideas but the creatures i think are, are worth worth looking at and this might be a good time to talk about those classes that you're working on yeah yeah i i have the the great luck that i i'm, I'm very lucky to have two players in my games who are currently play testing some and both well actually that's not true sorry getting ahead of myself but yeah so so available right now one is called the arcanite and it is basically like a a wizard paladin and and taking the kind of structure of a paladin with their lay on hands and believe i i use the idea of channel divinity to provide structure for how i i design the class basically the one of the core features of the class is they have this thing called a flow of magic and so when i was I think, or I'll back up a little bit here, but when I'm, I'm designing a class or a creature, I'm, I'm very focused on either a, a story or a, a visual aspect of, of what the, the thing is doing. So in the case of the flow of magic, I, I kind of had this idea that what if rather than learning these specific spells and, and these specific components, you just kind of focused in on one area of magic and be kind of not if you were just more used to or, or become more tuned to to doing a, a couple of specific things so the idea i think for the flow of magic is that is this very physical thing that the arcanites do so my favorite class is the abjurist and they use their flow of magic to to use their reactions most typically to reduce damage so there's a limit to how much they can use at a time but the general idea being that in the higher levels of the class anyone within 30 feet of them when they take a hit the abjurist arcanite can like use a reaction throw up a hand and in the same vein of a of a shield throw up like a certain amount of of like a, a damage buffer to you know hopefully stop a a party member from going down or or you know whatever the circumstances but the idea was was always like this designing all these subclasses like very very visual there's another one which is i think called a diviner and i i when i was visualizing that i think they're are kind of specialize on on the idea of of like twisting fate on the battlefield very much like the divination wizard but again more more like acutely so rather than having portent rolls they use their flow of magic and they have to use you know five points at a time and they can only use like two points per their level at a time but if they have five points available they can change change a save saving throw up or down by one number which in many cases can be you know the difference between life and death and then you know at higher levels of course when they have just more available to them they could get up to like three four points but of course it's a very limited resource so it's the uses of it are 
are important. Yeah, I like. I just kind of like the idea of rather than like casting these complicated spells, although they still have that again, like have casters. The idea of them like reaching out and kind of like, if if you have a game where you interpret magic as the weave, like kind of tapping into the weave and and moving with it and 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 adjusting things on the battlefield. So that's one aspect of it. I'll if you have any, I will begin to rant about the uh, storytelling side of things for another class. But I'll, I'll shut up for a second if you have any any things you want to focus in on there. I don't think much other than it's, I mean, it's a completely new class. It's with its own subclasses then. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I can't, again, with the, the sort of obsession with, I don't know, like being unique, I suppose. I didn't, I'm, I'm hesitant to even use the word original. I couldn't, I couldn't even bring myself to attempt to design subclasses for, for already existing classes. Yeah, so then the storytelling aspect of it. I have a, a player playtesting a class called a shape changer. And, you know, the, the idea or the fundamental kind of like vision for the class being the, the kind of werewolf stand in or the, uh, you know, like even, even perhaps like a, a Hulk kind of stand in with the story of the class being one of having this, this inner conflict. So how I, I represented that within the mechanics became... I suppose maybe the, the central question I was asking myself is like, how does how how do I make this from a, a character standpoint? How how do I make the character kind of feel bad having this class while still having the player kind of have fun with it? And the the primary thing is is using a mechanic around their hit dice. So the hit dice for this class are D twelve, and you know they can at second level can change shape into whatever subclass they take and, and there's obviously room for them to flavor it as they like although it's it's not on my patreon right now i'm sure by the time this is this episode is posted i'll have it up but you know they can change into like a devil or a demon or or a, you know just a general beast like thing leaving those kind of aspects vague hey right, it's back to the hit dice but yeah the central central kind of mechanics of the class are based around the hit dice and them not being able to regain hit dice on long rests but rather being able to use their hit dice during combat to to heal themselves up and then regaining them on short rests and the vision i kind of wanted to create with that is when the party beds down for their long rest it's been a tough day the shape changer character rather than bedding down with everyone else for their long rests takes a short rest gets an amount of hit dice back and then is forced to go into their shape changed form to heal themselves and then do a short rest again and have a night of them just kind of like alone away from the party in this kind of like physical sense of, of suffering while also like trying not to penalize people for not taking long rests. So they also like can only take one point of exhaustion because I feel like if I didn't include that in the the design of the class, if this were to be released or if the public were to take to this, you would definitely have DMs who were like seeking to punish players at any point possible and being like, well, you haven't been able to long rest and it's been constant combat. So you have four points of exhaustion. You're no longer mechanically viable. But yeah, so I'm, I'm really, I'm really excited about, about that class as well and, and the storytelling potential of it. So this, the shape changer is almost like kind of the idea of like a werewolf type character right that's struggling with this form this kind of 
not necessarily controlling them, but is a is a big part of them. Yeah, yeah, and and it's even to the point where it is like the the subclass that you take at at level one is 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 called your blood curse. Like, what is your blood curse? So so very specific in in the language of of the features of the class is the idea that this is not a a. You know, you're not like a cool barbarian or a blessed paladin or or even like a, a clever warlock. You're like, I I'm cursed. I'm I'm having a bad time. But yeah, and, and then like with the the features of the class as it progresses on, aside from the the specificity of whatever blood curse you have, the main line of features that you get from the class are called abnormal manifestations, where your body, even outside of its shape changed form, will begin to change. And so, you know, in the the, the main kind of thing is that you get rather than having to use weapons you can just use your hands and and as like claws and and again like leaving it vague enough so that the players can can what's it called like in in leave leave room for their own characterization whether their their non shape changed form is just has like you know maybe long nails that they use as claws or are like full like proper claws yes the where was i talking about abnormal manifestations but yeah as the class progresses with these abnormal manifestations the the person outside of their shape changed form becomes more and more inhuman and i think there's a sort of like tragedy within the class that is like causing this this isolation and eventually around 14th or 15th level your shape changed form your original human form and your base form is your your like class is is whatever whatever like thing so rather than being a, a you know a person who changes changes into a werewolf once a day you're a werewolf who who occasionally can change into a person and the 20th level ability uh, is called lose control in which they get like i think two extra attacks or something in their their round but then they once combat is over they have to start making wisdom saves to change back into a person and the idea is that again just they lost control they they like you know lost themselves and were just a beast or a devil or, or something whatever the subclass is and then then are forced to like reconcile that with with staying in their human form for an hour however however long it is i like the the design and kind of the thought behind it for one hit dice don't tend to get used a lot or have a lot of uses yeah. so it's neat to see that as a resource and then i think that the kind of the like almost negative aspect of or like the negative implications of choosing this class gives you a lot more story hooks or ways to hook into and cause complications which i think is good because that hooks the players into the story a little bit more and, and kind of what's going on and i think i've seen people talk about the warlock as being one of those classes as well where having that like having your patron just baked into the class then provides the dm ways to kind of influence things a little bit more than you can with other classes yeah right and having this like curse gives you kind of just more i don't want to say control but it's, it feels like it's going to provide opportunities for interesting gameplay yeah i i, I would hope that with the class is provided a a structure or a story or, or or even just like a loose outline of of again like this this curse is going to get worse and i think it's it's similar to warlocks especially with 
you know, people who, who are connected to like the undead and the great old ones and the fiends of like, I, th I think there's, there'd be a motivation for the characters to be like, how do I get rid of this pact? How do I get rid of this curse? I like the idea of a, a sort of like reluctance of, of ability, but also a, a ha having a, a, a powerful ability as well. Something that's, that's very useful. I think that's the one thing that I'm still kind of working on in the design of the class is, is the balance of, of its ability. Cause as hit dice at lower levels, you know, I, I ran a combat last night with the, one of the, the one player who was playtesting this class. And there are a couple of things I'm already noticing, which is like, when you have the ability to heal yourself, you become more self-reliant and it means you expend your resources quicker. So while the other party member, they've saved their spell slots, they're level three, they save their spell slots, have their, their things. This player has used his three, his three main resources. And then additionally, with the, the nature of the storytelling of the class, it, I think it's very easy to like put yourself in a corner of like, well, cool. So in this case, this player is, is changes into a big crystalline devil and they had a combat two minutes outside of a town, but then combat ends. The current running mechanic is that every time they use their, their hit dice, they are forced to stay in their shape changed form for 10 minutes is in his shape changed form as a crystalline devil for 30 minutes. And it's kind of like stuck waiting outside the town, which isn't, you know, the, the end of the world because 30 minutes in D and D time can brush over pretty quickly. But if you're in kind of a tight spot, like they are where they're kind of between, we have the town that's two minutes away, but also we're in this cave. And if we stay in this cave, things are going to keep coming out of the cave and attacking us. So it puts a, a, a very complex kind of, kind of natural, I suppose, complexer or problems that the party needs to figure out how to solve. Not all of which, or at least for me, I, I try not to be a punishing TM. So when something happens, that's like particularly difficult that I didn't have the intention of putting on the players. I think I feel bad. I, I think most players probably enjoy the idea of, of solving the problem. But for me, when the session finished, I was like, oh no how are they going to continue on like what's their next move i don't i don't have that figured out for them of do they just drape a a, a cloak over this nine foot tall shimmering crystal demon thing yeah so there's there's still a lot of of interesting design choices to be made in regards to the the story that is is sort of evolves just from the existence of of the class and i suppose you could run into some issues with that because none of the other classes really have that like i guess it maybe depends on setting as well but most of the other classes are not going to have something that's like oh hey like if you walk into town right now everybody's going to attack you. yeah exactly right yeah yeah and again for although i although you know bad dms and, and malicious dms are always going to find ways to to be mean to the players anyway it's always a a a thing that's on my mind of like i don't want this to be put into someone's hands and then used against them but yeah it's it's definitely like a a I, I suppose that is that is maybe one of the the difficulties as well like as, as much as a a class like warlock and in this class provides a kind of structure for a story i think many times it, it can be a like a hindrance, especially if, if the story that is being told is more focused on something that is external from 
the not not necessarily like each individual party member but like not external from their abilities if you have a, a character in the party that is oh like their their ex the existence of their abilities going to cause problems i can imagine that that being not as as fun to play you know imagining like a again in the case of the warlock like you're not enough and you have a fiend patron so they they like take away your powers like what do you but it's like you're just following the story and and like doing the mean things for your fiend patron might feel like derailing or like taking that agency might feel like derailing yeah it's it's a i there's a interesting conundrum that i think i i need to work on um have you ever read or played the what is it masks it's like a superhero Powered by the Apocalypse game. No, I haven't. So a little bit of this is reminding me of, of some of the playbooks or classes that they have there, specifically because a lot of the, they, the, the playbooks that they use are very kind of specific to a, a, like an archetype, like a superhero archetype. And the one, to some degree, that this reminds me of is the Doomed, where... Like, as you continue going on, like, your fate is kind of sealed and, and, like, bad things follow you and will ultimately happen to you. So if you wanted some either inspiration or to just kind of look at, you know, an example of that, I think that might be a good place to to look, even though it's you know, superhero themed, but maybe of interest. Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll have to look. Yeah, because my only, my only reference right now, before before the Shape Changer was a, a class, it was a... a I ran this this horror campaign at the beginning of the pandemic with some of my friends, and one of the the characters' backstories was that they had, or they they I don't remember they, they were like a tiefling of some like very with, with with lineage that connected to a very evil thing, and the creatures that were that they were dealing with the problem that they were dealing with was was also very evil and causing a lot of problems, and so the kind of character's arc was giving into these abilities and becoming less and less human in order to to solve the problem. But with this other character that I'm running now or, or player, their story is so so I'll, I'll reveal a bit about the what's going on in the setting because at this point most of the players have, have discovered it. But within the setting, 60 years ago, there was this occupying empire that just collapsed out of nowhere. It was like going fine and then it collapsed. And so basically what had happened is that the, the you know, god of lies and, and the influence of, of that deity had kind of infested the, the empire. And these crystalline devils were kind of representations of that. And, and their appearance would be sort of used to stoke fear and, and division. And, and, you know, the story that went around was that they were representations of the anger of the gods. And so they were called the crystalline hatred. And there are some people who were like taken around the, the time that they were 10 and and given a, a blood curse to change into these things where most of these these devils were just made purely of crystal and were never human. There are some of them that are human that kind of like infiltrated the empire and helped bring it down. And when it collapsed, everything just kind of disappeared and and left the people and the lands that it occupied absent their rulers but this this character escaped they didn't go down with the ship and they've been living for 60 years as an elf with this blood curse to yeah as an elf with this blood curse they they've been living with this this problem and this guilt and the the 
conflict I'm, I'm encountering that I, I suppose just because it's only two sessions in and I don't necessarily know what to do with it yet is that everyone knows what a, a crystalline hatred is because they've still been around since the fall. They've been in this land for 150 years and they're, they're causing problems. So everyone like knows more or less what to do with the what's it called everyone knows to do what, what when they see a, a crystalline hatred which is to attack it so I, I suppose it's it's like a a class that causes and i suppose that maybe reflecting on it this is true for for many many different subclasses but like perhaps there's a question that needs to be asked before using it of of belong in the story because what i i found is is there are a couple of, of popular subclasses that people use where they don't really fit. Like I have two swashbuckler rogues who are like landlocked, who are both like have backgrounds as pirates. And I'm like, this is a weird kind of form of, of storytelling. I don't know how to accommodate these. And, and similar with the, the Drake Warden Ranger, where I have a, a number of players who are just like, well, I, I want to be, I want to be a Drake Warden. And then that provides a, a kind of burden on my world building where a lot of cases the drake warden doesn't make sense because i i have a very complex sort of dragon lore that goes beyond just the the kind of metallic and chromatic dragons so i, I suppose even you know perhaps the the question isn't like how do you mitigate the what's it called how do you mitigate the, the problems that a, a class might encounter, but the question might rather just be, is this class or subclass right for the, the story being told? I think what I'm, I'm having a, in the moment epiphany of is that question I, I don't think gets asked a whole lot. I think, you know, because D&D is a, a, a set of mechanics first, and the storytelling aspect of D&D is, is kind of a, a thing that is is shared amongst the community and, and kind of passed on through like podcasts like this and, and Matt Colville and, and these other things. So maybe maybe that should be the focus, the this central question of of is this right for the story? Well I think that even can come down to like the artificers and stuff yeah. too. I mean that entire class could be could could just not make sense at all. Yeah. For a given a game or theme or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely encounter and I suppose this this really like oh I'm the one thing I'm I'm struggling with now right now with having so many players is like I, I think there is a a a more or less like common understanding of, of fantasy in most people's minds as to what it should look like, in which it's kind of like pre-industrial or like post-renaissance somewhere like in that area era and and guns exist and and artificers exist and and there's also like a very specific interpretation of of how worlds fundamentally work in which science is a thing alongside magic and, and in the case of the artificers like you have players who make really big assumptions just by the existence of the class and don't ask to don't like ask it how it fits or if it fits. I and mean, I do have a couple of games where like, you know, artificers are a no-no. But I, I, I suppose I'd be interested to just get someone else's perspective on it of like, do you do you encounter that like flavor dissonance? I will say that I played an artificer in a campaign a while ago. I say campaign, but it was like three sessions. <laughs> that's, um, that's how most but it was go. But it was definitely like, I had flavored everything as technology, right? All of his spells were some sort of 
technological or physical thing like healing would have been like a stim you know syringe or something and you know firebolt is you know shooting a gun essentially right so everything is was like technology based but then we were also in kind of a high magic type world where where like i want i remember one of the scenes we went to like a like a city center type thing we were looking for this like politician type person and it was almost akin to like harry potter where like you talk to the front desk and then they said okay we'll send a note to so and so so they cast a little spell and then you know the the note wraps itself up like a paper airplane and goes and flies to their to the, whoever's room it is right so it's this very weird like everything that i do is like technology based but we also live in this world where like common tasks are delegated to magic yeah so it felt like it felt weird once we got kind of farther in to that so yes i i have experienced that like, yeah it, that's i think that's something so i'm someone who who thinks thinks like endlessly about about like world building logistics in a a high magic world because like my world like science does not exist science is magic fundamentally so like i i for, like and to the point where i i think about like magical pr principles that would create or like how how okay i'll i'll, I'll just d dive into one there's something that i i came up with a while ago that is a a principle for for designing extremely large buildings called levit levitational compartmentalization and essentially it's just a a use of of the levitate spell on sections of buildings so that the a gravity of of like the building would not cause it to like collapse in on itself and also because in like the real world in buildings you have to have like counterweights that when the wind blows like when an earthquake happens the building doesn't like just fall over and collapse and so levitational compartmentalization plays that role and, and the principle is simple again just casting a levitate spell or enchanting a levitate spell on like large blocks of a building but then it, it allows buildings to be very high in a in a particularly high magic setting and allows them to sway a little bit without having a, a you know structural compromise so i think that much about like the the logistics of, of world building and then i have people just showing up in games not asking a single question being like i have a gun and i'm like you it's that's not how it would work though yeah it's 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 definitely a a like I I suppose this this really comes around for me to like the idea of 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 buying into a world and and when you are someone who just kind of gives your your world to to people who are paying to be in it within reason it's it's very hard to communicate the 50 pages of information that exists free floating in my head about the exact logistics of of magic and and the overlaps of science and interpretations of like fates and everything and, and gods it's it's yeah i i just find there's a, a lot of uh, i don't know if 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 there's maybe a piece of advice to to go from this rather than just rambling i think the one thing i'd i'd love to see from players is just for them to ask about like how does this work in the world that would that would make my life like hundreds of degrees easier yeah player buy-in is is definitely helpful and just i guess along with buy-in to just kind of be aware of the world and stuff and i assume that you know as you like describe different pieces of the world that would help because a lot of those things are it really depends on your dm and how much 
how much thought they've put into the world because you know if you're limited on time then you may not think about a lot of those smaller you know details and things so the players may not even know to ask yeah you know i think and i think that's also because i i'm also someone of of the principle despite for for most of the last hour going on extended rants and rambles in in most scenarios and especially for players i i really do not want to overload them with information like i could go on extended rants about again like how how magic works and how the gods work and how they play their roles in, in the different forces of the world and and how relationships are developed between like gods and and people who follow them and what it means to follow a god and things like that these are all like very relevant things to a lot of the games i'm running i would love to just sit all 70 some of my players down and be like here's how it works but also i think there is a a principle or or, or truth or, or something in that players are only going to learn as as much as as they are interested in as they're curious for and i i i think it is there is a I think, you know, amongst, you know, many things that I think are, are present in, in a conversation around the D&D community, I think player curiosity is something that I isn't, I, I don't think I've ever really seen mentioned and, and I think would go a long way because there are definitely players I have that are, are wonderful. Like I had this incredible moment of of a player paying attention and, and, and calling back. I, I, so literally probably 70 sessions ago. I'm not in the same game, but I I run probably around 70 to 80 sessions between the the game that incited this event and and the game that recently happened where where this player kind of ratified a piece of world building. But basically the story is that this this cult was trying to summon a powerful thing into the world in order to fight a worse thing by by massacring a bunch of people. The party realized what was going on because they were part of that people who were potentially getting massacred and they stopped it but at the consequence of now this horrible thing is still in the world and and nothing has come to deal with it and one of the players had messaged me about wanting to have a sort of like fall from grace arc for their paladin and so basically they were they had come to a place in this apocalyptic setting where there happens to be a, a lot of people who are all basically like refugees from hell and there's this really really tragic moment for the character where he was like well, cool my god has failed me and but i remember the words that were used in this ritual when these people were being massacred so party you guys go on ahead you sket out the tomb that we're going to me and my npc brother are going to stick around and just keep watch and then they they did a horrible thing but er, remembered or wrote down the words that i had kind of wrote down as a a like you know one and done and never gonna think about this again but when he like said them it was like as i as i take my sword out and go to approach doing this horrible thing i speak these words and i was like oh my god oh my god like this is it's such a, a gratifying feeling when when someone does like honor the the world building and like has and like kind of like feels when, when you have a character that actually feels like they, they live in the very complex world that you've created, I don't even know like how to, to describe or if there's, there's something to learn from that. I just, I just like that, that feeling was, was amazing. And I, I wish that more players knew what to do in order to, to get there.
It's a really cool story. And yeah, it's, I would say that that's probably not necessarily always an easy thing for players or for DMs to, to try and like set up moments like that, yeah. right? That's kind of a natural, natural consequence of having an invested players and yeah, yeah. And I, think, I don't know what else I'm trying to yeah. say. <laughs> I, and I think it's also a matter of like, cause I, I run a very specific kind of, of, of game, even, even sandbox game, given the nature of how I run my settings and in, in any given setting, there's at least two other parties in there with you. There's a lot more freedom for players to, to pursue the most interesting thing for them. So there's this real sense that I, I try to encourage amongst my players of agency of like, you, the story is in your hands, you are leading it. I am not going to push you anywhere. But I think that's a very difficult thing for people to, to grasp. Because obviously, like, games just regularly can be be so complicated i i had or i'm still having in my big setting two groups are, are crossing over they've they've had like three or four weeks or maybe even five weeks of of crossover sessions where their parties are in the same place so the the players are showing up in each other's campaigns and i think i suppose the the thing that i i've been having to to wrestle with is in in the absence of a a forced structure or a more concise structure that you know still it for most people would have some leeway for the players to be creative in the total absence of a, a a structure that i have personally planned out for each group how do you get a a party to tell a, a story and the one thing i i noticed of of you know for example i had a session with like eight players like a role play session and we kind of had, you know, a limited amount of time because I also needed events to happen in the session. And within like the first hour, the, the players or the characters were just like kind of talking to each other and like kind of not like having tr necessarily like trivial in a bad way, but like having trivial conversations that like didn't relate to the story. And I was like, oh, no, this is going to be a big problem. But it's I've come up with a, I think, a solution that generally I, I would hope help people and and the moment i have some time to work on it which could be today which is is creating a, a sort of like document to to outline the story that is being told like because you know i oftentimes i'll i'll, I'll in a session i'll i'll take time to check in with a player or the group the group and say you know what does your character think about this thing in an attempt to try to get them to initiate a role play scene i i tends not to, to want to force my players together to talk about something. But oftentimes the players have a, a difficult time like keeping a, a grasp on like what is of the story or what is the point of the thing that they are doing in a, a role play sense. Like they know like the next objective, but in an improv improvisational story, there's they, oftentimes when people exist in their own lives, the through line of the character can get lost. So I, I have this idea to sort of create a, a document that's like inciting events, you know, themes or basically like outlines for Pete for characters to reference where they're coming from and where they're going and how it relates to their story or this arc or whatever. But I suppose that's really the. Uh, but I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop myself there. The point of, of that being, I, I have this like solution that I, I find really, hopefully, to be effective that I'll be implementing soon. Cool. Well, we are getting about to time, so 
this would be a great time for you to plug your socials and where people can find absolutely most places i am jesse t william tiktok on instagram on twitter i believe also it would be wonderful if, if people could check out my patreon and and hopefully use these these monsters that i've created and, and give some feedback and uh, yeah that is that is where i can be found awesome jesse well it was great having you back up. thanks for having me Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. You can find links to all of the products and resources that we talked about on the show in the show notes. And if you'd like to join the community or find out how to be on the show, check out our subreddit or join us in our Discord server.